Some time ago, we entered into a study of the Ten Commandments, and we come this morning to our second study on the Eighth Commandment. If you're not already there by way of anticipation, open your Bibles to Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Very few words are spoken here, but much is packed into them. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. You shall not steal. Now, just a mere cursory reading of that. Seems like, okay, we're not to take anything that belongs to somebody else. It doesn't belong to us. Well, let me ask you, when you read or you hear these words, Thou shalt not steal, who do you think of? Well, the Holy Spirit intends that we don't think of other people, that we think of ourselves. Thou, you, me, we should not Steal. It's easy for us to point the finger of this commandment at somebody else and not at ourselves. Well, last week we began opening up the Eighth Commandment, and we saw, first of all, its expansive meaning and its evangelical purpose. Its expansive meaning. David says, I've seen an end to all perfection. Thy commandment is exceedingly broad. It touches all aspects of our lives, not just with our hands, but with our hearts. And having seen that we are all thieves by nature, this commandment drives us to the God of all grace. Indeed, it pleads with us, saying, You are a thief. Go to the Savior of thieves. Plead His mercy, which is more than abundant. His grace is greater than all of your sin. And then we began opening up the Eighth Commandment. We're using the Westminster Larger Catechism to guide us in our study. And last week we saw the duties required by the Eighth Commandment. That it requires all honesty and integrity in business transactions, the return of all wrongfully obtained goods to their rightful owners. It requires generous, proportionate provision for the needs of others. It requires a reasonable regard for and wise use of our worldly goods. It requires diligence in one's lawful calling. And it requires us to avoid waste and unwise financial entanglements. And it requires all lawful endeavors to further and others' financial and temporal well-being. Now remember from our introductory, one of our introductory studies to the Ten Commandments, the biblical principle that where any sin is forbidden, the opposite duty is commanded. And that whatever duties are commanded, the opposite sins are forbidden. And, and so here... Last time we assumed the prohibition of some sins as well as we considered the duties commanded by the Eighth Commandment. 
Now in our time this morning, we're going to ponder in more detail some specific sins forbidden by the command, you shall not steal. So let us consider then sins forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. Scottish Puritan Robert Layton in the 17th century summarizes the breadth of the sins commanded or forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. He writes, The scope of the commandment is that whatever is comprehended under the name of theft is forbidden. All manner of injustice and wrong done to our neighbor in his estate, whether by violence or by sleight of hand, by force or fraud, yea, if it be but so much as an affection or desire. For as we have said before, the law is spiritual and binds not only the hands, but the heart. So we have to come to this commandment with open hearts, not just looking at our hands, but looking within at our hearts. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 42. What are the sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, beside the neglect of the duties required, are, and I've listed five categories of sins that are forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. And God willing, in our study next Lord's Day, we'll conclude our consideration of the Eighth Commandment with some very practical application regarding our lives in society and in the church. Let us begin then to consider the first of those areas or categories of sins that are forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. First of all, the Eighth Commandment forbids theft, receiving, stolen property, and kidnapping. The language is this in the the Catechism. Theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen. Now, this is the most obvious, plain application of the Eighth Commandment. It forbids all manner of theft, taking what doesn't belong to us. This includes burglary, which would be secret theft, robbery, which is open theft, receiving and holding stolen property. These sins are recognized as crimes by most, if not all countries. But we must say that in cultures little influenced by the Bible, graft is expected. If you want to get something done quickly in government, you grease the palm of some official to get it done quickly rather than going through the proper channels. Stealing is commonplace. And though Islam forbids Muslims, for instance, from stealing from each other, they are permitted by their holy books to steal from non-Muslims because they're regarded as infidels and not worthy of honor. Such is also permitted in the case of lying. Now, man-stealing, that's a word that you probably don't run across very often, but it's the same as kidnapping. Slavery is practiced Throughout our world, it's big business, in fact, in many places. We remember the Soviet gulags, 
Today we know of forced labor camps still in China, North Korea, and in some Muslim nations. Slavery is a tragic commentary upon the degradation of our own nation. We're not free from this guilt, especially in the sex trade. No more degrading business exists in the trafficking of human souls. Such violations of the Eighth Commandment, of course, also involve violations of the Seventh Commandment and often tragically lead to the breaking of the Sixth Commandment. It involves illicit sex and many are killed or commit suicide. Merchandisers of human flesh are pouring through our porous southern border dragging their captives with them or else procuring them when they get here. Brethren, God abominates this practice. It degrades men and women, making merchandise of His image, dragging the crown of His creation through the mire, ruining, debasing, and often shortening the lives of its victims. So the Eighth Commandment forbids theft, receiving stolen property, in kidnapping. Notice, secondly, the Eighth Commandment forbids all deceitful business practices. Fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing landmarks, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, Bribery, vexatious lawsuits, unjust enclosures and depopulations, engrossing commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings. Now, brethren, last time we saw that honesty is the foundation of the Eighth Commandment. Lying is dishonesty of the heart and mouth. Stealing is dishonesty of the hand, and the one leads to the other. Obviously, this command forbids all employment theft, that is, employers stealing from their employees by not paying them their wages, and employees stealing from their employers either by laziness or by pilfering from the boss. Both are forbidden plainly by the Bible. Employers are spoken of in James 5 and verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He's heard their cries. Regarding employees... Paul, in Titus chapter 2, forbids those who are slaves, and we would say employees, not pilfering. That is, taking what belongs to the boss and pocketing it yourself, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You see, the way we work reflects back upon the God we profess to serve. Ephesians 6 and verse 6 he speaks to slaves, and of course this applies to all of us. Be boss or be employee, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, only working when the boss is looking. Many other various sins are included here. 
all manner of dishonesty, fraud, deception, failing to provide what is promised by cheating, intimidation in business, extortion, overcharging of interest, bribery, unrighteous lawsuits, even as we saw last Lord's Day. Now there's some strange expressions in here. By unjust enclosures is meant what we would say today price fixing. An illegal trust that set artificially high prices. Depopulations is the practice of buying up large tracts of land to form great estates and then removing the tenants who have been living on it. Isaiah warns those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. So that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. It drives people out of their property. This practice still goes on in some non-Christian lands. The spirit of the Eighth Commandment forbids hostile takeovers in which... New company owners fire all the workers of their former company without attempting to find them new employment. That's unrighteous. Notice, too, unlawful callings are forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. Not all work is honorable. No matter how successful you might otherwise be, if the work you are doing is forbidden by the law of God. The, the catechism points to the Ephesian silversmiths who made their living by selling pagan idols. The application of the Eighth Commandment seems plain enough here, since the making of and the selling of idols is forbidden by the First and Second Commandments. But what about otherwise questionable occupations? Such as, for instance, owning or operating a business that sells tobacco or alcohol. Now, brethren, this question isn't theoretical. I know a situation in a solid church in which the eldership and deacons wrestled whether one of the deacons who owned such a business that trafficked in alcohol and cigarettes should remain in his office in the church. This, the vexing question wasn't one of legality, the legality of the occupation, but of its propriety. Would a Christian, especially an office bearer in a church, be above reproach, this is the question, if his business involved selling products subject to abuse, specifically things that may lead consumers to violate the heart of the Sixth Commandment, that is, to do Injury to your body. Now, what do you think? Do you think the Eighth Commandment forbids laboring in such a business? Now, I'm not going to open up this can of worms. But these are thorny questions, are they not? Men have different views on the right answer. Surely, the Eighth Commandment forbids all callings that are essentially and necessarily immoral, for instance, prostitution or racketeering or drug trafficking. They're immoral as well as being illegal. And here's the point. We must strive to think biblically. 
Thirdly, the Eighth Commandment forbids withholding from our neighbor his due. The language reads this way. All other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him or of enriching ourselves. The idea is enriching ourselves with what belongs to him. Or to enrich ourselves in which he doesn't benefit at all. Now what does it mean to withhold from our neighbor what belongs to him? Does this mean that we have to give him whatever he wants? Must we put into the hand of a panhandler a $10 bill and wish him well and send him on his way? Listen to the Puritan Robert Layton. Though his 17th century language is a bit dated, his message is as relevant as it is challenging. He writes, There is a kind of right that the poor have to supply. It is not merely arbitrary to you. Though they have not such a right as to take it at their own hand, or to seek it at the houses of human justice, in other words, take you to court to take it from you, they have such a right as that your hand ought not to detain it. Proverbs 3 and verse 27, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due. Which is evidently meant, Leighton says, and interpreters take it so, of all kind of doing good, even that of charity and beneficence to the needy, as appears in the following clause in Proverbs 3 and verse 27, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. And as the Septuagint reads, it is due. They have a right to it. Though not such as they can sue before men's courts or judicatures, yet in the court of conscience and in the sight of God, it is duly theirs. The word is from him who is Lord of it. Although you are in possession and have a surplus, what he wants is his by right. He is Lord of it, for the Lord of all has turned over his right to your poor brother. The Lord himself does not need it. Your goodness cannot reach him. He has furnished you with such as need it, and may be his receivers, and have warrant from him to take it up in his stead." And be sure he, that is God, will acknowledge the receipt of it. In other words, God is watching you give to the needy person. He sees with his own eyes what you're doing with your heart and with your hand. You have his own word and writ for it. A bill of exchange under his own hand that what you give to the poor be put upon his accounts. He that giveth to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay it. Proverbs 19 and verse 17. And again, Matthew 25 and verse 40. In that you did it, Jesus said, unto one of the least of these, you did it unto me. 
It is the surest and most lasting part of a man's estate that is put into their hand. Your alms alone of all your wealth you shall possess forever. That's putting it in purses, as it were, that have no holes. God is a sufficient debtor. It is a treasure laid up in heaven, says old Mr. Layton. But we have a problem. And the problem is with our sin. The simple fact is that we are born with tight fists. Weren't we? I know I was. No one has to teach us how to be selfish. One of the first utterances out of the mouth when we were toddlers was a four-letter word. That word is mine. Have you ever heard a little kid say that? Do you remember saying it? fact is, we don't give the needy what God wants us to give. And if we don't give what God would have us to give, we don't own it. It owns us. He gives to us so that we can give to others. He's made us to be a conduit of His blessing. But I'm afraid that there are oftentimes, at least in my own life, there are cobwebs in this conduit. He is as correct as he is convincing who said, God has given us two hands, one to receive with and the other to give with. We are not cisterns made for hoarding. We are channels made for giving. But brethren, don't we try to justify ourselves with the excuse, well, I would give if I had more. Well, brother, generosity is not a matter of finances, it's a matter of faith. William Plummer said, He who is not generous with what he has only deceives himself when he thinks he would be generous if he had more. Brethren, the poor widow in the Gospels puts a lie to that kind of reasoning. She gave all that she had. And Jesus didn't rebuke her for it, but held her out to praise. And what did Jesus teach? That he who is faithful in what? A little will be faithful in much. Dear ones, we can attempt all kinds of clever excuses to salve our consciences when disobeying God's command to show generosity to those that He puts in our paths to help. And yet we refuse to see ourselves as the Levite or the priest who passes by the needy one in Jesus' parable. You see, we can always leave it up to someone else to do the good deed and then miss the blessing that comes. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And was that not his life's motto? He didn't just preach it, he lived it. That's why we're here. He gave himself the just for the unjust that we might be saved. 
Selfishness makes us conserve the use of those things in which God says we should be liberal. Say, I don't want to be liberal. Well, there's, there's some things we should be liberal in. And this is one of them. And we'll never be the loser for being generous. Proverbs 11 and verse 24. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and it results only in want. As we saw last time, we can't outgive God. He loves the hilarious giver. Jesus speaks to those of us who may think that we'll come out the richer for sitting down hard on our wallets. But generous givers are abundant receivers. Do we not have our Lord's promise? Luke 6 and verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Brethren, do we not have our Lord's example? He came not to be served, but to serve. And in giving himself to save us, he would reclaim a world of sinners given him by his Father. That was the joy that was set before him by which he endured the cross and despised the shame and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And do we not have the example of our Heavenly Father? He spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us. And think about what you and I deserve. And yet, he gave his Son to save the likes of you and me. Fourthly, the Eighth Commandment forbids covetousness, financial worries, and envy. Covetousness, inordinate prizing, and affecting worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares, and studies in getting, keeping, and using them, envying at the prosperity of others, Envying at the prosperity of others, that's what drives many markets. That's why there's such thing as commercials. We're taught that we don't have it, we should want it, we need it, we better get it. If we're going to be happy and successful, secure in this life, increase our sense of well-being. And brethren, here we anticipate the Tenth Commandment that forbids us to covet. And so we move from sticky fingers and stingy hands to hoarding hearts, to distracting cares, covetous designs, discontent, and envying the good things of others. How easy it is to slip into the mindset of the world by placing our faith in finances, to trust in bank accounts, market funds, and portfolios in which our contentment waxes or wanes according to the market index. God never intended our sense of well-being be found in the fluctuating finances of this fickle world. 
One of the richest men that ever cast his shadow upon this earth pronounced life under the sun as vanity of vanity. What didn't he have that men wanted? He had it all. He wore himself out, gaining what men still live and die for. What did the Lord teach Solomon about the pursuit of riches? Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Don't even spend time thinking about it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and flies toward the heavens. You have it and you don't. It's gone. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. He's laid his head in the lap of luxury and he tosses and turns all night long wondering what he's going to do with what he has. Remember Asaph. Envy of the rich almost drove him down the road of apostasy. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Psalm 73, verse 1. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to say, I was like a beast before you, God. I was like an animal. I wasn't rationally thinking. I'm a child of you. I'm a member of Israel. God is good to Israel. And yet I look out and I see all these things that I don't have. And my tongue hangs out. I want them. These people are living the life of Riley. They're, they're unconverted. They're content in their sin. And they've got more. They've got to build bigger barns to hold it all. In me, my cupboards are bare. Solomon's father saw the struggle in which he lived of those who envy the rich, but God taught him to teach others to be content with his provision. So David would teach us a lesson. We're often slow to learn, quite frankly. Psalm 37, verse 7 verses. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. They're here today. They'll be gone tomorrow. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Roll up your sleeves. Work hard. God will reward. That's what he's saying. Delight yourself in the Lord. There's the foundation. And He will give you the desires of your heart. You got your focus in the wrong place. Those things don't give, but God gives. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. And He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. 
Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Brethren, the Eighth Commandment calls upon us to keep our focus upon the Lord. You see, only as we trust Him, delight ourselves in Him, commit our way to Him, wait patiently for Him, and rest in Him, will we be kept from fretting about our own condition and covet the possessions and the situations of others. How many weary themselves into an early grave, wanting things that God hasn't been pleased to give them? Brethren, as we cast our care upon Him who cares for us, trusting implicitly in Him who will never leave us or forsake us, and that promise was given in the presence of, of, worried, of worrying about wealth, He'll never leave us or forsake us. We will learn, even as Paul did, to be content in whatsoever situation God puts us in. See, we're not born with this contentment. And I suggest, Paul says, we're not born again with it either. But the effect of the new birth is to learn to be content with what God provides. Finally, the Eighth Commandment forbids laziness and wasting the blessings God provides. Brethren, idleness is dangerous. Even the world knows that Idle hands are the devil's playground. It not only thrusts us into the way of increased temptation, it's evil in itself, idleness is, because it prevents us from being productive. In fact, a lazy worker, the Bible teaches, is akin to a destroyer. Proverbs 18 and verse 9. He also who is slack in his work. We used to call them slackers. We didn't want to be a slacker. Or at least we didn't want to be a slacker when anybody was looking. He also who is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Wasting time doing shoddy work. You're a, dis- you're a brother to him who destroys. Furthermore, lazy people can be troublemakers. Idle professing Christians caused problems in the Thessalonian church by their undisciplined lives. They went here and they were there. They visited all these people when they should have been working at their jobs. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Just being gadabouts, going around and being mooches. The Eighth Commandment also forbids the misuse of God's blessings. Does not the Bible teach that God gives us richly all things to enjoy whatever we have? But we must be wise stewards of God's blessings. We must not be wasteful. Remember the old adage, waste not, want not, so the Bible teaches, Proverbs 21, 17, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. He gets it and he spends it. As soon as it comes into one pocket, it goes out through his hand. 
doesn't hold on to it. He thinks it's to be used, not to be saved, not to be given. Living the life of luxury is wasteful when it could be productive. How love of pleasure cripples and may even ruin the soul for life here and for life hereafter. It promises what it cannot provide and robs us of true and everlasting blessing. Charles Bridges writes, The most melancholy sight in the universe is the man confined in the prison house of selfishness, who sacrifices to the love of pleasure. Reminds us of Bunyan's Man in the Cage. Who sacrifices to the love of pleasure the interest of his immortal soul. Salvation is thrown away as a thing of nothing. Fearful indeed is the poverty, the utter eternal ruin of this willful infatuation. Woe unto you that are rich, for ye have your consolation. Son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted. And you are tormented. Love of pleasure and love of money rather than love of God will characterize the professing church in the last days. Could it be that that day is already here? But let us not look outside to others, but as I said at the beginning, inside to ourselves. What are sensuality and covetousness, but common forms of idolatry. With one knee we may bow to the God of mammon, and with the other, the God of our own body. One is destined to turn to ashes, and the other back to dirt. You see, if we live to satisfy our lust, to amass wealth, we will live unsatisfied and we will die in torment. Luke 16. And where does living the life of Riley lead? What did Jesus say? Luke 12, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says to the rich man, uh, the rich man says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for years to come. You see, he uh, tore down his small barns, built larger barns, stored all of his increased intake in them. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I want a life of fat retirement, he's saying. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? You can't take it with you? Indeed, it was just an anchor to weigh you down to hell. Further, for those who look to clever schemes and lean on unrealistic dreams, the Eighth Commandment has a word for you. And it is this, the path to plenty is the path of diligence in your calling. Proverbs 28, verse 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. Proverbs 
Chapter 12 and verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. But he who pursues vain things lacks sense. Brethren, let's face it. Laziness is in our genes. In fact, apart from God's help, we're, we're, we're all sluggards by nature. Listen to Proverbs chapter 26. He has all kinds of excuses not to look for work or to work. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. I better not leave my house. I've got to preserve my life. I don't want to take my life in my hands. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. One side, the other side. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary to bring it to his mouth again. He's too lazy to feed himself. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. He always has an excuse for his laziness. But you don't understand, you know, I, I've got this plan to do this or that. My ship just hasn't come in yet. But when it does, ah, you'll be coming back to me and said, you are wise. Brethren, we can be very creative in dodging hard work. We can manufacture all kinds of excuses to sit on our duff. Most of you are too young, but I'm reminded of a late 50s comedy show in which the two young leading characters, one a beatnik and the other a straight-laced friend, were always inventing some cockamamie, cockamamie schemes to get out of work. Dobie and Maynard, Dobie's dad, owned a general store and he always had him work in the store and Dobie Gillis and he always tried to find his way out. And anytime Maynard heard the word work, he would work. But the reason that's so funny is because that's so true. Brethren, if overwork has slain its thousands, at least here in America, laziness has slain its ten thousands. The appeal of getting something for nothing is, for many, very strong. Get rich, quick schemes abound. Lottery tickets, sales, and gaming houses are big business. Our government de-incentivizes work and subsidizes laziness with its lucrative welfare and unemployment programs. Is it not surprising then that diligence in and contentment with our ordinary calling may seem like a boring proposition, especially to dreamy young people and to jaded older folks? But this is God's prescription for material blessing and true happiness in our calling. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Brethren, work is good. It is a creation ordinance. Adam was commanded to go out and to till and to care for the garden. It is a gift of God. It is our duty as God's image bearers 
Diligence in our employment is our covenant obligation before God according to the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor and to do all your work. It is sin that makes work seem bad. Yes, it's difficult. By the sweat of our brow we shall earn our bread. But it's our attitude, isn't it? Happy we will be and we will lead productive lives when we learn to do our work as unto God, to see it as a means of blessing for ourselves and for others. We as a church solemnly recite these words before God and before each other as we receive new members into the church. A practical paraphrase of the Eighth Commandment. We agree to be diligent in our vocations that we may provide for our own households, avoid theft of time, money, or goods, and to have to give to him who has need. But the question is, do we mean this? We're saying it before God, we're saying it in the presence of many witnesses, we're testifying this to our brethren. Well, next time we'll ponder some some several lines of specific application relevant to our lives as citizens in this world and members of Christ's church from the Eighth Commandment. But as I close, I may hear someone say in his heart, well, you know, I'm not really a thief by trade. I, I work hard. Yeah, I, I might have taken something along the way that didn't belong to me. Well, your admission testifies of your guilt before God. That sin, representing all kinds of other sins that you may not even be aware of, that you need a Savior. You need to be saved from your sin. You need, be, need to be delivered from the wrath to come that will crash down upon those that are not forgiven of their sins. That's why Jesus was sent into this world, to be the Savior of sinners. He didn't come to save good people. Good people don't think they need to be saved. He came not to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. Those who are well don't think they need a doctor, but those who are sick know they do. Can you honestly say before God, with judgment day honesty, I am not a thief? I don't think you can if you're honest with yourself. Well, that stealing one candy bar, that's a sin against the Eighth Commandment, and that will put a person in hell forever. Why? Because every sin is committed against an infinitely holy God. That's why every sin is infinitely evil. Oh, the message to you this morning is that you come to Christ and be saved. Honestly confess your sin. He knows all about it. He knows far more about your sin than you know about your sin. And yet he, he calls you, He pleads with you, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come unto me, I will not cast you out, Jesus says. Jesus came to preach hope for thieves like ourselves. Oh, may you come to him today 
and be saved from the wrath to come and be accepted in the Beloved, knowing that your sins are washed away and the door of heaven is open to you forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we have been found out in this message. We've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Lord, there's no place to hide. The only place to hide is at the cross, with our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the one who came to live a holy life for our unholy life, the one who never stole a thing for those who have stolen things perhaps without number. In fact, all of us come here as thieves because you are a good God. We know that you exist, and yet we do not honor you as God or give thanks. We have robbed you of the honor and gratitude that is due you because of your daily mercies to us. Indeed, your kindness and goodness is to lead us to repentance, take us by the hand and lead us to the cross. And Lord, if there are any here that, that know that they're sinners, we pray that you would take them by the hand. Those that don't know and are hiding, we pray that you would expose them to themselves and you would lead them to Jesus Christ and grant them the faith that you promised to bless with salvation and the repentance with eternal life that is the blessing of all who come to Jesus. So Lord, hear us as we pray. Do, mercy, do good things and show mercy to sinners and to saints alike because which one of us as your people don't need fresh mercies from Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.